0: All right, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17 and possibly even get into 18. And we are now uh, following along with the children of Israel as they're making their way in the wilderness of sin. Not the kind of sin that we think of, but that was just the name of the place. It's also sometimes referred to as the wilderness of Zin. And uh, we saw last time the Lord making a miraculous provision for his people. They're grumbling about the fact that there's nothing to eat. They're, they're saying to Moses, my goodness, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have just died there? You got to bring us all the way out here to die in the middle of the wilderness. And of course, the Lord um, responds to that grousing and complaining by providing manna from heaven. And uh, we, we made the connection between how the Lord provided this miraculous food that sustained life of his people as they made their way out of Egypt and, and its connection or its symbolism of Jesus Christ as the bread of life for us and how that provision, that sustenance is what keeps us spiritually alive and indeed is uh, our guarantee of eternal life. So it's a very significant um, chapter from the standpoint of establishing that particular symbology of God's miraculous provision to sustain His people, uh, being a foreshadowing of God's provision of His Son to sustain us for eternal life. Uh, this this chapter in chapter seventeen, we yet again see a miraculous provision. By the Lord, and it likewise has spiritual significance similar to that of the manna. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 17. Let's just read the first four verses to start out. Here's what it says Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, We see here uh, a real problem, okay? You've got a huge company of people. I mean, if you look at even the most conservative estimates of how many Israelites came out of Egypt heading towards the promised land, it was the size of a decent-sized city of people, numbering anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of people. And then on top of that, they had vast herds and flocks, So so this massive company of people and animals moving through the wilderness of sin and there is no water to drink. Now, the thing that we have to understand right from the get-go is right there in the first verse because we see there in the first verse that they're making their way through this wilderness according to the commandment of the Lord. And and we, we might be tempted to think that, well, if the Lord commanded it, why Why are they having this existential crisis? I mean, if people, the most people can live without water is about three days and then you're toast. And so we we often think the same thing. If things are going poorly, we must not be in the will of God. And very often you aren't because a lot of times things are going poorly because of our own folly. But if you are following your best discernment of the Lord, staying true to his word, and doing the things that we know the Lord would have us do. And things are going badly. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not in the will of God. In fact it might mean precisely the opposite. That you're in the midst of a trial that the Lord has allowed. Because he has a purpose within that trial. And, and I don't know about you. But I can look back on my time as a Christian. And and I could see those kind of times. You know, We just prayed in the other room. For people who are going through. Life-threatening issues. I mean, cancer seems to be every other word when we're praying on a Wednesday night. So many people we know having cancer. And you would think, well, there are those that think that if you are afflicted with a loathsome disease like that, it's because you did something wrong or because you're sideways with God or you're in sin. Not at all. Uh, Very often, God can use those kind of valleys in our life for the process of either sanctification or, in many cases, salvation. There are many people who have gotten saved because they saw the hand of God guiding them through, not plucking them out of the trial, but guiding them through the trial. And they get to the other side, they see the beauty of the Lord, they see the faithfulness of the Lord, and they give their life to Him. And as you might imagine, given what it says there in verse 1 that that they are actually following the Lord and it is because they're following the Lord that they are now in a situation where there's no water we have to understand that God has got a purpose in this and it is indeed the purpose of testing his people and and so the people respond to Moses first of all they say give us water to drink I mean you ask one man Give us water to drink for, uh, let's call it a couple million people, plus who knows how many animals. Uh, It sounds like an unreasonable request. Here's where we've got to place this episode into the context of everything we have read since the beginning of this book. Here's Moses. He comes out out of the wilderness of Midian. He comes back to Egypt. He comes to lead his people away from the most powerful man in the world with a great big army and all that comes with that. And Moses, because of the anointing of the Lord on him and Aaron, are able to bring to pass 10 jaw dropping plagues that ultimately bring Pharaoh and Egypt to its knees, let the people go, not only let them go, but enrich them in a massive way before they leave Egypt. Then, when Pharaoh changes his mind yet again, he changes his mind more than a junior high girl. He goes after them, he pins them against the Red Sea. It's looking like lights out curtains, and then the Lord again instructs Moses with that staff. the sea parts, they make their way through it, then the sea collapses in on the so you get the picture. so what they've seen up till this point has been extraordinary events, which kind of explains how they're poking at Moses, give us water. What it ignores, and Moses even points it out, there in verse two, Moses says to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? What he's calling them out on is that they are poking at God. They are in essence, they are in essence impugning the character of God. They, they are Saying back to Moses which indirectly is to God that God is not a loving God God does not have a purpose uh, for their good I mean here he has delivered them out of bondage delivered them from annihilation uh, provided manna from heaven to feed them and yet even with all of that they're they're poking back at God you're not a good God you're not a loving God you you have brought us out here to kill us and this is the thing that moses is reacting to this is why moses does exactly the right thing he takes it back to headquarters He, he says to moses cried out to the lord saying what shall i do with this people they are almost ready to stone me moses realizes the power to bring water to these people it's not it doesn't lie within him he is, he is an intermediary between the people of Israel and God. And so all he can do is bring back to God the issue because he knows that all of their invective against him is really against God. And this is something that I think Moses instantly recognizes as being very dangerous for those people. You don't want to get on the wrong side of God by impugning His character, as we saw on—I uh, guess it was a Sunday recently—when uh, you when you impugn the name of God, the character of God, or the work of God, that's blasphemy, and that's what these people were toying with. Now Moses is doing something that that um, is difficult to do, but necessary to do if you are a leader of God's people. Pastors face this all the, all the time. Moses is facing it here. There are times when you're faced with uh, pushback or, or issues within the people that are going to make you very unpopular. See, they're directing all the negativity at Moses. He is their leader. And a lesser leader, when they, when they get that kind of pressure coming back at them, they clam up, they dry up, they retreat. Well, you know, what can I do? I mean, if you got a better idea, why don't you just do it or something like that? That's not what real leaders do. If you are a leader of God's people in any context, it could be a Sunday school class, it could be young adults, it could be the youth leader, it could be the pastor of the church, it could be anybody who is over a portion of the people of God. If you're a leader and you seek the Lord on the decisions that you make and the actions that you take, you rest in that. Even when you've got people yapping in your face or you've got people who are, who are uh, like here, they're, they're, immediately they are assuming bad motive on the part of Moses. You brought us out of Egypt to kill us. I mean, you see that all the time here when people disagree with one another you say something that they don't agree with or they say something you don't agree with, immediately bad motives are, are ascribed to the person who's, a, who's disagreeing. And, and this is happening here. But for those that are called to lead, they need to lead. They need to point out what God says about an issue and then stick to that and trust that God will show on the other side of the, the conflict that the the decision that was made is the correct one. So watch here what happens, verse five and six. The Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the rod which you struck the river and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, Horeb, another name for the Sinai, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So the first thing that God is, is telling him to do, okay, Moses, you still have to lead, but you don't have to go this alone. There are other men in your midst who are also leaders, who are individuals that the people respect. I'm sure if the Lord is telling him to go before the elders, the Lord has a sense of their character and, and approves of their character. And so he's he's encouraging Moses to share this responsibility with the leadership. And again, this is something that's very relevant to the way in which we need to conduct the modern church is that it's not a one-man thing. It's it's a, it's a collective, it's a body. Yeah, you got to have leadership, but that leadership should be also distributed among other gifted men in the body who can provide counsel, who can take on specific areas of leadership or areas to be executed in terms of tasks or or ministry. And and we're going to see in the next chapter that uh, Moses' father-in-law actually tells him to formalize this because Moses at this early stage is getting overwhelmed with the responsibilities of leadership. So the Lord is telling him to do this and he's telling him take the rod that you used to strike the river and that's the reference to what Moses did in Egypt when he turned the river into blood and those kinds of things and you might say well did the Lord need for Moses to have this rod to accomplish first of all the things that he did in Egypt but now to bring water from the rock and The answer to that is the rod isn't for the benefit of God. The rod was for the benefit of Moses and the people. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Sometimes the Lord will use a human agent or even an inanimate object as a a facilitator of releasing one's faith. Here we have Moses. He'll come up onto this rock that he's about to strike and people will see he has the, the staff in his hand. Moses himself will have some confidence. And what the Lord has asked him to do, because, hey, this looks familiar. This was the same formula that we employed when we were back in Egypt and we were doing the things that ultimately resulted in the people um, being let go of Egypt, out of Egypt. And so this becomes a symbol, an icon. Uh, not that we should ever put our faith and trust in icons or symbols, but they can at times be a focus for our faith. And I think the rod in this case had that particular function. This is why the Lord said it. Could the Lord have just spoken it? Yes. In fact, you'll see that on the other end of their wilderness wanderings, that the Lord can, anything the Lord wants to do, he can merely speak it. Goodness gracious. The Bible tells us that's how he created the universe, with the word of his mouth. And so when you see things like he had this staff, that's not for God's benefit. God doesn't need that. That's more for pandering to the faith that people are going to have or not have in the situation. Now think about Moses getting up on this rock the way the Lord is telling him to do. Uh, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. So here's Moses, he's standing on the rock. The Lord is there with him and he's gonna strike, he's gonna tell the people, hey, I'm gonna strike this rock and you're gonna have the water you need. Now think about this for a moment. If we're talking about a million, two million or more people. If we're talking about herds and flocks, we're not talking about striking the rock and all of a sudden this little spring starts to bubble forth from the rock. We are talking about a virtual river of water. To water that many people, I mean we don't think of it that way. We think boom and there's like one of these beautiful little springs that you see if you hike through the Mountains uh, on, in Western Carolina and you'll find some springs and things. Water coming between a crevice in the rock. And you say, oh, wow, isn't that wonderful? That's so pure. That's so wonderful. That wouldn't cut it, okay, for this particular task. It would have to be a literal torrent of water, okay? So we got to keep that in mind. So here's Moses and he's standing on a, a, a windswept, dry as unbuttered toast rock, and he's going to tell them what he's about to do. And you got to believe that Moses better have a lot of faith in that moment. Because can you imagine how ridiculous he would look if he's banging away on that rock with the staff and nothing's happening? So he's got to get to a place where he can, he can have the faith to say, I'm putting my reputation on the line. Because if this didn't happen, he's done as a leader in fact he might even be done as a breathing human being you know so there he is um, verse 7 so he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying is the Lord among us or not now Massa and Meribah Meribah means quarreling And Masat means either testing or tempting. And the testing, tempting uh, descriptor is speaking to the children of Israel basically poking into God's chest and saying, are you with us or not? Do you care for us or not? Do you love us or not? We should never find ourselves doing that with the Lord God. I know sometimes uh, in the frustration of living with a an infirmity, whether it's a physical infirmity where your ability to move is is being robbed from you or you're just, your general health is declining and the things that you were so used to doing and took for granted now are a major challenge or you can't even do them at all. And sometimes in those situations, people get very, very angry with God. I know uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, who was a devout man of God in the Catholic tradition his whole life, and yet, uh, in his last days, he was in excruciating pain. Uh, he had pancreatic cancer. And um, there was a point in time where we were concerned because he was very angry with God. Uh, and, you know, with due respect to my grandfather, and I do believe he's in heaven, um, God doesn't owe us a thing. When, 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 we, when we get angry with God because he, we feel like he's taking something from us, we need to see the flip side of that, that he gave us that at all, that he gave us life. I mean, this is one of the harsh realities of families that lose a child and, and they could be angry with God because here's this four-year-old, oh, my, my, um, my nephew lost his three-year-old son to cancer. I mean, the kid from age six months to when he passed at age three lived in A hospital just about with cancer in and out of the hospital all kinds of treatments and I know there was some anger there because how could you do this and yet everything they they have said and written about Landon was all how blessed they were to know him to have him to have the joy of his life in their life and what we should be saying is thank you for those three years He's with the Lord. Sometimes when we pray for the life of a child, the Lord says, I'm going to answer your prayer by making his life perfect with me. And that's hard for us because we lose the fellowship with him. Of course, we know that if we are people of God, we'll one day see that child. Even David the king knew he would see the child that the Lord took from him because of his sin with Bathsheba. So... When we poke at God's chest in anger because He didn't give us what we wanted, or He took something from us that we thought we needed or that we owned, which we know we don't, um, this is this is this is serious sin. So Meribah quarreling with God, quarreling with Moses, Masa, tempting God and the like. And so this becomes a watershed moment, pardon the pun, because Uh, it it becomes something that the scripture will continue to refer back to as the iconic example of the unfaithfulness that God's people can sometimes engender. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at Massa. Deuteronomy 33, eight. Your holy one whom you tested at Massa with whom you contend at the waters of Meribah. You see, this, this was a big deal. We might say, well, gosh, they were thirsty. There was nothing to drink. The the clock was ticking on their ability to be hydrated enough to, to live. They were frustrated. No. They saw miracles of God, the likes of which we will probably never see on our time on earth. The things that God did to deliver them from Egypt, the thing God did to save them from Pharaoh at the Red Sea, the thing that God did to provide this daily manna to sustain their lives. God had showed them his glory in ways that the vast, vast majority of people ever to have lived have never seen. And yet here they are poking at the Lord and, um, and saying, is the Lord among us? Um, this, like I said, it's great sin. It's a time in this time of difficulty of the children of Israel, um, directly or indirectly, they're doubting the love and the presence of God in their midst. And we're gonna see, well, we won't see it with me because I won't have a chance to get there, but at the end of their 40 years of wandering, we're gonna find that they're in a similar situation in a place also called Meribah, but it's distinguished from this Meribah Massa. Because it's in the area of Kadesh Barnea, which is actually in the promised land. And so in that place, it's known as Meribah Kadesh, which is near Kadesh Barnea. And there, the people once again are grousing because there is no water. And they're they're poking at Moses, which really means they're poking at God. And Moses is at his wit's end. He's been putting up with this nonsense for 40 years. And he's getting worn out. And, uh, and so he and Aaron go to the tent of meeting and they, they entreat the Lord. And the Lord instructs him in this occasion. Again, like I said, the staff is not what makes it happen. It's the Lord. The Lord says, I want you to speak to the rock and water will flow forth from it. But Moses is angry. And Moses is probably angry, not only because they are poking at God, but now he's taking it personally. He's saying, look, I've got a 40-year body of work here where I have been your leader. I have literally saved your lives many times. I have gone back to the Lord on your behalf, you miserable stiff-necked people, and you're putting all this on me. So by the time he's ready to go back before the children of Israel to provide the water, he forgets about the Lord's command. He actually, and you can find this all out in Numbers chapter 20. We won't go there now. But he actually, uh, kind of on behalf of him and Aaron says, you want water? We'll give you water. We, me and Aaron, we'll give you water. Not, we've gone to the Lord and here's what the Lord said. No, it's, we'll give you water. And in his anger, he strikes the rock with his, with his staff. Now, the Lord could have said, okay, Moses, you blew it. And so we're not going to give any water. Which, in which case the punishment is transferred to the people whom God wants to sustain for obvious reasons. So the water comes issuing forth. Again, it would have to be a literal river of water to, to accommodate all those people. But it does cost Moses and Aaron the prize of that whole wilderness wandering, which is to actually enter into the promised land. And... The closest Moses gets is he gets to Mount Nebo, which is in the country of Jordan today. When we were in our trip on, in 2020, and I think in 2018 as well, um, we, we w- went to Jordan. And one of the things that we did was we stood on Mount Nebo and then looked west into the land of Israel. And it is a spectacular view from there and this is the view that God allowed Moses to have it's funny because when we went in 2020 it was really overcast and literally raining and I had built this up to the people I said boy when you get on that mountain and you look at at the country of Israel you see it all laid out there before you and it's just so impressive and you could just picture how Moses's heart would be kind of breaking because he realizes there it is and I'll never get there but it was pouring. It was, it was one of those things where you feel like you're in a cloud because the cloud covers right down on top of you. And I kid you not, we finally assembled on that mountain. And right then, whoosh, an opening opened up. There was the land of Israel. We got to see it. And then whoosh, it closed up again. It was it, it was so. It was such a God moment. And um, so Meribah, Meribah Kadesh will be... The bookend of this incident it 'll be a, a similar situation this time Moses loses his cool and and it costs him entering the promised land. but later on, centuries later, this whole situation with the water from a rock, all of a sudden we see the spiritual significance of that come into focus because uh, later when the Feast of Tabernacles is instituted as one of the principal feasts of the children of Israel. And they celebrate, now they're in, the, they're in the land, they're in the city of Jerusalem, they have the temple, they have the city of Jerusalem all around the temple. And one of the things they would do at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is they would draw water from the Pool of Siloam. We saw that when we were there just back in February. In fact, they're, they're actually esca- excavating to un- uncover the, the totality of the pool. When we've been in times past, it was just kind of a little strip of it and the little steps that were part of the side of it. But now they're doing excavation and they're actually laying out the whole dimension of the Pool of Siloam. And that was a... a Principal source of water within the city because the water that was coming through the Hezekiah tunnel was what was supplying that particular pool so that they could have water even if the city was under siege. So they would draw water from the pool of Siloam and they would bring it to the Temple Mount and they would pour it out to commemorate the Lord's miraculous provision of water in the wilderness to sustain his people. And so Jesus on one of the feasts of the tabernacle that he celebrated in his earthly ministry, he shows up on the last day of the feast as they're getting ready to pour out the water as they always did. And Jesus makes this statement in John chapter seven, verses 37 and eight. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now you start to see the imagery taking place. Water from a rock. Our, what, what are our hearts before we know Jesus? They're hearts of stone, right? They're, they're hardened. They're, they're, they're impenetrable, it would seem. And then miraculously, this water, this living water pours forth. Now, uh, you get the commentary in John 7, 39, that Jesus was referring to the Holy Spirit in, indwelling the believer who who comes, seeks after Jesus, comes to him and drinks of him, which comes to us in the form of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God now indwelling in us. And when we are in a heart of serving the Lord and fellowshipping with the Lord, what Jesus is promising here is that the power and the presence of the Spirit of God can flow forth from the believer. This is similar to the speech he made uh, to the, the Samaritan woman at the well because there's the water. He asked her to get a drink. Um, she says, why would you ask me for a drink? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish man. To which Jesus responds, if you knew who was talking to you and the water that I could provide, you would, you would have this living water forever. And of course, she wants this living water. Ultimately, she gets saved and then leads her whole village to salvation. But this is, this is the, the spiritual link Between, in so many cases, you see something physical being provided to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, and it has a transferable spiritual provision that is given to the people of God in the New Testament. And this is one of those instances where the Lord's provision of water from a rock ultimately is used as the symbolism to describe. The water that comes forth from what once was rocked, the hardened heart of a sinner pouring forth to help in the cause of Christ in the world. And I could say this with total confidence. I'm sure everybody in this room could as well. That the spirit of God would live in any of us, much less flow forth from us, is every bit as big a miracle as what the Lord did at Meribah in, in causing... H2O, to come out of a a literal rock. And so that's what's going on here. Now we move from that to um, the first real battle that the children of Israel face as as they're approaching the land. We read in verse eight, now Amalek came forth with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek, Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Now, Amalek, the Amalekites, these people um, were a a, a warrior class of people. They they made no attempt to... um, Come and meet with the leadership of Israel. Uh, they they made no provision to enter into treaty or anything like that. No, they just in an unprovoked way attacked. And we actually get some commentary about the method of their attack from Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. What we read there is Remember that Amalek did to remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God now that last part about he did not fear God suggests to me that the reputation of the Israelites preceded them. people of the land knew people of the surrounding lands knew uh, there's something. Super special about these people. These are the ones that got away from Egypt. These are the ones that defeated Pharaoh's army, etc., etc., etc. And what we see here is that the, that Amalek and his people they attack in the most cowardly way. They come in from the rear and they attack the weak and the stragglers. And many a Bible commentator and Bible teacher have associated Amalek and the battle that the Israelites had with Amalek to the battle that we have with the flesh. The battle that we have with sin, the flesh, the devil, the world, all of that combined is constantly on the attack against the people of God. And much like Amalek, who attacks the stragglers, attracts the weak, attacks when one is tired and weary, Satan works that way against us. He finds the weak spot. He finds those that are are limping along. And he attacks mercilessly, continually, and sometimes without warning. And this is the way that we, we have to constantly be on our guard because we have an enemy that is equally as determined as Amalek was relative to the children of Israel. Amalek is symbolic for the battle that we have with sin in our flesh. And we see there in um, verse 9, the first mention of Joshua. Joshua would ultimately be the one that Moses passes the torch to. Uh, He was the great general of the Jewish people of that time. And so we see in this first mention of Joshua that Moses says to him, choose some men and go out to fight with Amalek. "'Tomorrow I stand on the top of the hill "'with the rod of God in my hand.' "'So Joshua did as Moses said to him, "'fought with Amalek, and then Moses, his brother, "'and this other man known as Hur, "'they go up on the top of the hill. "'And so it was when Moses held up his hand "'that Israel prevailed.'" Now, to hold up their hand, that was a posture of prayer for the Jewish people of that time. And very often we do this too when we're worshiping or praying that we might raise our hand to the Lord. And I think it goes back to um, something we saw, I think, in the last Sunday's message about having uh, clean hands before the Lord and pure heart. And clean hand and pure heart are associated, much like when when a policeman approaches you to question you, the first thing he's going to ask you is, show me your hands. Show me your hands. I want to know that your intentions relative to me, the peace officer, are good. Show me your hands. And, And no one should ever get wise with a cop. He's trying to protect himself, so if you get pulled over, they want your hands on the wheel. Don't start fishing around for your license or anything. Don't do anything. Just have your hands where they can be seen. Well, in much the same way, a gesture of of raising hands to the Lord is is, is kind of an act of submission, really. It's like, I'm holding nothing, Lord. I'm all yours, kind of thing. And so they have their hands. Moses has his hands up, and... um, held up his hand, and when he did so, Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Now, you know what's going on here. What's going on here is we are being schooled on the importance of prayer in the fight that we wage every day. The the, the enemy attacking us every day uh, is warfare. In fact, if you would, uh, just quickly, turn over to Ephesians chapter six, and I know most of you know these verses very well. But um, it's worth it's worth taking a look at them in this context because you can imagine here's Moses and he's like this and he's praying over his people as they are fighting the enemy. And then as he's wearying of that and as he brings his hands down which we could consider to be equivalent to ceasing the prayer for a, a point in time all of a sudden the enemy now is gaining ground. And here is what we learn from the Apostle Paul. You know it well, verse 12 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded up your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that would be the righteousness of Christ, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So you see it very clearly laid out there that, um, that the, uh, the, the, the importance of prayer is every bit as important as wielding the sword. The guys that are on the field, you say, well, they're doing the hard stuff and Moses is he's now in, into his 80s. Um, I feel for the guy. And so he's hanging out up there on the hill. And okay, so he has nothing else to do. He's praying. Not at all. As we see here, the intensity of his prayer is directly uh, influencing the course of the battle. And so um, we read in verse 12 that when his hands became heavy, uh, but Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Now, this is a beautiful picture. This this is what we just did a few minutes ago in that other room. A group of us got together. We prayed together. We prayed together for each of the issues that were on our prayer list. It was a cooperative intercession session where we we, we didn't raise our arms. It's not a posture of prayer we're necessarily used to in that context, but the, but the same thing is going on here. We are standing with those who are on the field fighting, fighting cancer. They're fighting uh, issues with children. They're fighting issues with employment. They're fighting issues with their spiritual life. They're fighting against the devil trying to keep them from being saved. And we're standing up on that hill and we're praying for them this is how it works this right here this picture with amalek is our day-to-day life as christians the battle is raging all around uh yes we have the sword of the spirit which is the word of god we have all of those different aspects of um of protection the only offensive weapon we're given we're given the sword of the spirit which we hold in our hand we're given prayer which in itself is, is defensive, but also offensive. And, and so it's, it's, a, uh, it's an amazing moment. And, and we're, we're counseled many times. We were counseled there in Ephesians 6. Colossians 4.2 tells us, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanks, thanksgiving. You cannot overpray your life, okay? You, you cannot overpray a situation. There, there's never too much prayer. We saw it in Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all things. I mean, so many different cues in the scripture to keep up that conversation with God. And whether it's in the form of supplication where you're making an earnest but humble request, whether it's intercession for someone else, whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's God, I don't even know what to pray. Even there... It's worth doing, because we we read in Romans that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us even when we don't know what to pray, even when we don't know what to utter. The Holy Spirit is tuning into our cries to God, and He is putting the message together for us and so um, this is this is a moment of of just critical, critical. Uh, discipline within our Christian life. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jeremiah 33.3, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. First Thessalonians 5.16 and 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I know Some of you in this room are facing big challenges. Uh, Maybe you're living through big disappointment. Maybe there's a challenge out there or something that could really stretch you and you're unsure. Maybe you feel I've got imposter syndrome. I don't know if I'm worthy or blah, blah, blah. All of these things the enemy can use if we let him he can use it to fill you with despair he can use it to discourage you he can use you use it to draw you back into the world and and what the lord is is telling us is it doesn't have to be that way the battle is certain it's going to be going on amalek is going to constantly be looking to hit your rear flank hit you when you're weak hit you when you're tired and if we're praying without ceasing we're always prepared So we read in verse 13, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it its name, the Lord is my banner, which in Hebrew is is Yahweh Nisi, Jehovah Nisi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So Amalek, even in this context, becomes a symbol for all of the enemies of God's people. And it is indeed a symbol for our great enemy, which of course we know is Satan and his minions, who, if you are an unbeliever, tries desperately to keep you from being saved; If you are a believer, does everything he can to discourage you, to disqualify your witness, to knock you back on your heels so you are not a useful soldier in God's army. And 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 we need to be doing just what Moses was doing. As that battle is raging all around us, stay in prayer and, and seek the Lord in the midst of it. Well, I think we'll stop there and um, we'll pick it up next time in Exodus chapter 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we draw from These encounters that the children of Israel had with you, Lord, and the challenges that they faced are symbolic of and representative of the challenges that we face. The need for provision, the need for that living water first to come into us and then to come flowing from us, the need to be continually in prayer that we are not overcome by the amalek of our life which is the sin the flesh and the devil and so lord thank you god for this instruction and we pray lord that we would take it to heart and we would live in accordance with the wisdom that you gave us tonight lord we pray this all in jesus name amen amen